The church is much bigger than a brand. It is the, you know, the living bride of Christ. We have allowed the living bride of Christ to receive a reputation in some ways deserved and in other ways not that breaks my heart. We, we are held to a higher standard because of who we say we are, and yet we, we are fallible and fall to all of these human issues. And so like, I wanna tell that in the same way a marketer is there to tell the story of the brand and bring people into that experience, like I feel very called to do that for the church. Does marketing have a role to play in sharing the story of salvation? What opportunities and risks exist when we consider the church as a brand? And how does innovation find its footing in the established structures of the church in today's episode, former studio and ad agency executive and CEO of Catholic Ventures, Matt Meeks, shows us the world's need for authenticity and how strategies that address that need can renew the popular perspective of the church while bringing more people to Christ. People are craving Christ more than they ever have, and all it really takes is just like authentic living. It takes being present to those people authentically as a friend, and a friend is someone who sticks with them. And so I think if people could get their heads out of the numbers, like I need to create this thing for the church that reaches a million people and convinces them of the truth, like if and they, they really got their heads in like, how do I be authentically present to the person in front of me? And if I'm good at that, well, let me add another person. And if I'm good at that, let me add five. That's what the world's craving. And that involves the justice side because you've got to serve those people. You've got to, you've got to be real. You know, you've got to journey with them. In an age that desires truth despite so many distractions, God's answer is for us to live our authentic lives. By striving in discipleship, we can become the co-workers in redemption that He calls us to be. This is Living the Call. Matt Meeks, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you, man. By the way, um, you ever watch that movie, uh, Dead Poet Society? Yeah, of course. Back in the day? Yeah, the Meeks. Only... There's a Meeks in there, right? Yeah. That's l the only other Meeks I know. Yeah. We're few and far between. Also, I think there was a Meeks when Jesus was talking about the Beatitudes. You know, it's just a mistype that it says the meek, but originally I think it was intended <laughs> the Meeks. Something yeah. tells me you've used that one before. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it was a good flick. Were you like uh, into film when you were young? Were you? Like, uh, I love that... film. I love yeah. films. Yeah, part yeah. I mean, even this like uh, I like watching old movies too. This weekend, I tried to get my sure. six year old to watch The Quiet Man with me. The the, Which the was old that? John Wayne movie. It's um, oh wow okay. It's a it's John Wayne and he's a boxer who goes to his homeland in Ireland like with some baggage. So basically like he accidentally kills a guy in the ring and he wants a quiet life and so he goes back and buys the house where he was born and it's kind of oh, like wow. the story of this guy coming into this town and and it's it's a good movie. It's a good a good good movie. Do you, do you think that like that kind of archetype of um sort of strong silent type uh kind of persists in today's Hollywood to some degree? Do you see that at all or no? Um, whew. I think in some films, I, I think it's, you probably see it less and less like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think, I don't know. I feel like Mark Wahlberg has had some roles or like, um, yeah. like what was that movie that was so good? Warrior, the MMA movie with the two brothers that worked out their demons in the ring in this like national competition. Did you see that one? Oh no, I didn't. I, the, the MMA one that comes to mind was the Kevin James one. Here comes the boom, which was. Oh yeah, that one was really good. That one was hilarious. Yeah. yeah more yeah. lighthearted. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I love Kevin James. He's, have you, and by his YouTube channel, have you seen that? I haven't, no. Oh, you got to check it out. There's um. Oh really? Yeah, he does it in collaboration with a couple, uh, basically a film company that was a buddy of mine, Chuck Kinane. And uh, oh, cool. it's like one of the, the most creative YouTube channels you'll ever watch. Like Kevin's really exploring his, uh, his breadth of acting and doing a lot of, a lot of brilliant stuff. It's, it's worth seeing. He's, yeah. he's one of those guys that like when you watch the movies, it's, it's always a bit of a feel good. Like when stuff he's in, you kind of like yeah. can settle in and relax a little bit. Yeah. It reminds me a bit of like, you know, back in the day, Steve Martin movies or even um, even Eddie Murphy movies on some level. Yeah. There's always this kind of like, OK, I can settle in and I'm going to have some fun. There's not going to yeah. be a bunch of you know what I mean? It's going to be goofy. It's going to be funny, but you're going to yeah. feel good at the end. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, no, this warrior movie is worth checking out. And so it's with uh, Tom. What's that British actor? Tom. Uh, Tom uh, Holland? No, man. Oh, why am I spacing his name? Anyway. Uh, Nick Nolte's in it. It's basically these two brothers who grew up with their dad, who was a um, like a fighting trainer, and he trained them both to just be, you know, 
badasses for lack of a better word. It's yeah. probably the only word to describe them. Sure. But then they've had a really hard life, alcoholism in the family, like the family fell apart. And basically after not seeing each other's for ye- for years, they end up in the ring together in an MMA competition and they have to work it out on a mat. And it's a really good movie. Tom Hardy. Tom Hardy. That's it. Yeah. yeah. He's actually in the, the Venom movie that's being advertised all over town. Yeah. By the way, interesting point about that. You mentioned that literally today as I was, I was um, uh, driving this morning to my son's school. That, have you seen that Venom outdoor creative? I haven't seen it. No, see, with you being in the LA area, you're seeing a lot of these, this film creative that we just don't get in Denver anymore. So like, it's, I it's, don't see it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, I mean, and I'm, I don't follow the franchise, but it's one of these Marvel, you know, kind of franchises. And Venom, which I always understood was kind of the bad guy to Spider-Man. Yeah. Now has his own franchise. And I was thinking about like, well, when you're the bad guy, or at least that's how I perceive Venom at some point, like, but you still have to have an antagonist, right? Because like all movies have an antagonist. And sure enough, there is Woody Harrelson plays, um, he plays, oh, the name of the character escapes me for a second. So there's Venom and there's like something it's like, I'll think of it in a second. But anyway, he, he plays this other character. They look very similar. They're these kind of like, you know, sort of ectomorphic kind of like spider things. But in the art, here's what's interesting. And it kind of ties back to your John Wayne thing, I think a little bit. Yeah. Tom Hardy's face in this. Half of his face is just his normal face. And the other half is the is the Venom character, yeah. right? Oh, Carnage is the name of the other character. Okay, yeah. And then Woody Harrelson's same thing. Half his face and then half the face is Carnage. But Tom Hardy's face is like placid and serene. And Woody Harrelson's is like kind of demented and staring at you. Now, they're both bad guys, right? Technically. But it's amazing to me that the idea of protagonist antagonist still has to exist to some degree, right? Because you have to have like a good guy, even among the bad guys. The audience has to find a hero always. Yeah. That's yeah, it. I yeah. mean, at least that's that's what I thought. Were movies like, or like, I guess, what was interesting to you that got you into that kind of marketing studio world that you that you were in for a long while? Yeah, stories, I think. I mean, in all forms, you know, like, but movies have always been it for me. I mean, even like as a kid playing video games, video games that had a good story were fun. Um, sure. Like um, reading a lot. Like, I, I think I've always just been a fan of really good story and, 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 uh, um, from both just like an artistic standpoint and the formula of what makes good story. And, um, and so, yeah, like, I mean, I wanted to go to film school. So I'm, I, I was one of those guys that took five and a half years for me to graduate college. Cause I couldn't make my mind up. So I spent, I spent a semester as a film major, you know, and, um, sure. and then my mom convinced me to minor business. And by the time I was so tired of college, all my credits were in business. So that's where I ended up. But, um, the, uh, uh, yeah, I've loved film. I mean, and, and like, uh, I think it's like, uh, you know, at least for what we have now, the, the highest art in the sense that it brings together, you know, music and, and good writing and, 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 um, the visual aspects. And like, when you see a, a director who has an eye for like creative set design and a writer who really writes funny dialogue or good dialogue, it's like, when all that stuff comes together in a good film, it's there's nothing that beats it. When you were thinking about doing film, did you have a particular either genre or director or writer that you liked a lot? At that time, I really liked Danny Boyle. Um, I was, sure. I was. I actually have a funny story. So, but Danny Boyle, for those who don't know, he was a uh, he's probably best known for Slumdog Millionaire, but he did Train Spotting. Train Spotting. Yeah, yeah, he did um, uh, the Beach and like. He had this unique style where like he'd incorporate this kind of the gritty aspects of life with an over driving like like you'd feel how things corrupt at the same time that you root for somebody to pull themselves out of it. And he was one of the first directors to incorporate like electronic music to create like a lot of emotion in a film. And and, and he and he did does like, does like creative things within the film where like, um, you, you know, it kind of it adds to the story, but also pulls you out in a sense. And so. I liked him and and I went to see, I think it was the the landmark on Pico in LA. I was working at an agency in LA and I went with my boss. She got tickets to go see the um, screen, a, a pre-screening of um, Slumdog Millionaire with Danny Boyle there to answer questions and stuff. So oh, wow. I, I go and uh, I'm sitting next to my boss and it was one of the first bold moves I made as a, as a person working in entertainment in LA. And I raised my hand to ask Danny Boyle a question at the end of Slumdog. And I just said, look, I'm sitting with my boss right now. So, you know, I'm serious, but I will quit my job right now 
if you'll give me a job. <laughs> oh, wow. That's great. Okay, so, so he smiled and yeah. said something, you know, and said, yeah, let's talk, whatever. And then he was out the back door before I got a chance and I kept my job. So it was fine. What'd your boss say? She laughed, you know, it was fine. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You and I have a lot in common in that sense. So I, I, um, I minored actually in, uh, in film and television oh, nice. production. I kind of uh, always wanted to write and I love the visual arts, but um, similar to you, maybe not so much by familial pressure to be in business, but more so by maybe a, just a recognition that I was good at yeah. kind of deal making and that kind of thing that, yeah. that, that took me out of the realm of the purely creative, but kind of kept me in the in the industry that was creative. Um, and then ultimately I kind of, I feel like I combined maybe, maybe the same is true for you, this idea of creativity and business, which from a secular standpoint equals marketing yeah, in a way. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think marketing pulls all those things together because you're using like, um, I mean, it's, you, you tell stories, you're using all kinds of different creative media to like towards persuasion. And I think good films have, have that, and mine too, you know, how can I carry the audience on a journey that persuades them of some truth, you know, some deeper truth at the end that I couldn't have just argued to them. It has to be shown. And I think that's what marketers try to do. Sure. Yeah. I think that that's, you know, in, in reading some of the things, knowing you, uh, although, you know, we're just kind of beginning to, to, to know one another, but in reading about you and understand the things that you're doing, I see all of those things operating in the background, right? The idea of marketing and story and business. And I'm very curious about, you know, of course, how that all manifests itself in the work that you're doing now. But there's one thing in particular that you said or wrote, I forget which one it was recently, that I came across and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And at the same time, kind of controversial. So it mm -hmm. makes it perfect for this show. Nice. And it, <laughs> and it was, um, you talked about the idea of kind of focusing and supporting the brand of the church yeah. as a touch point, right? And then like by extension, supporting laity and all that. And I was like, that's, I, I read that and I'm like, I get that. I understand that. But I can imagine that that's not without a lot of controversy to envision the church as brand. Yeah. Yeah. I even, I even got into an argument with one of my, my partners on this recently where they were saying the church isn't a brand and, and, like, I mean, it isn't, obviously, it's the family, the living family of God, you know, in in the created realm and, and in heaven and, and, and all of that. But it is also a brand in the sense that it's like, you know, what does Catholic mean to somebody who hears it? What and, and does that convey something to them that inspires them into or brings them into the life of the church, which is a family of God? And um, and I think we've largely allowed that brand to be, you know, to just be trampled on. Um, and, and that brand is, is, is the universal church, the, you know, the, the, the church at every level past, present, future, you know, uh, earth, purgatory, heaven, like, Absolutely. Um, um, and that is the family of God. And, and you should hear Catholic and, and get a sense or feel that universality. And I think if you asked any Catholic today, what their experience is of the word Catholic, they're not going to communicate that. And if you ask a secular person what their experience of the word Catholic is, well, you're going to get a lot of really sad feedback. And um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm probably a little bit crazy, but I feel led to work to lift up the brand of the church and bring those, bring back the family of God, you know, what that is to the word Catholic. Yeah, it jumped out at me for sure. And I, I thought about it, you know, in the context of the, the you know you and your partner having a disagreement about it i can see his perspective as well the reality is the church is a multi you know multifaceted uh, the bride of christ the body yeah, of christ yeah. an organization hierarchical spiritual supernatural i mean i try to explain this to yeah you know my business partner is not even not even christian right? so like i try to explain it to him he's like what and i'm not even understanding it but um but the thing about it is that's also you know it has some historical uh, attestation right in terms of I forget if it was like Polycarp or Augustine, one of the you know first few hundred years of the church, where he said um, that people will kind of raise their hand and say, here's the church of Jesus. But the moment you say, where's the Catholic church? They're like, oh, it's not this one, right? So the idea of that, that word, that brand, as we understand mm -hmm. it, having a specific you know identity, DNA, it communicates something. And, and so long as it can communicate something, 
that means that what it communicates can be you know watered down uh you know somehow misunderstood like so it has all of the attributes and characteristics that a brand yes. could have i just hadn't heard anybody refer to it that way especially somebody in as visible a role in the american church as you so i was like wow that's really really cool hmm. yeah well no thanks and and i it is not without its controversy both on a you know just theological way of explaining the church the church is much bigger than a brand it is the you know the living bride of christ but we have allowed the living bride of Christ to, you know, receive a reputation, you know, in some ways deserved and in other ways not that um, breaks my heart. And, and so like, I want to tell that in the same way a marketer is there to, you know, tell the story of the brand and bring people into that experience. Like I feel very called to do that for the church. What would be the brand assessment right now? on the church and what would be the areas that you would, if you're doing, an, you know, you're an agency, you get hired to take a look at, yeah. at this brand, like where are you thinking that there needs to be, you know, a push and where do we have to kind of retrench and other, and, and like, what's your assessment? Yeah. What a good question. Um, my assessment is like, um, uh, we've allowed, I think first and foremost, it's not united. So from the outside in, like any Catholic that looks at, you know, like, let's say you're, you're a random person who, um, your friend's Catholic, he lives a good life. There's something special to him, but you're not, you know, and you're attracted to the way, what, what's going on in his life, but it can't quite possibly be his Catholicism because everything you read about Catholicism is nuts, you know, in your, in your opinion, but you see this person and there's something attractive. So you start Googling. Well, if you go in and Google Catholic Church, you know, you're going to receive a whole bunch of news articles that just talk about the abuse crisis and, and all the external stuff, which is horrible that that's the only story that's being told because it's not the dominant story, but it is a story that needs to be told. Second, you get into Catholic media and then you find basically just like infighting. It's just this bishop's fighting with that bishop's fighting with this person. Like it, it, it you know, is chaos down the chain. And then, um, and then you go into any, okay, fine, let's get out of the news and get into a community. You go to a parish website and the average one of those is like probably 10 years out of date, if that, and they don't even have the right times for you to show up. And then you're like, okay, fine, let me just talk to one person. So you call the phone number and you don't get a call back, you know? And so- Or, or, or worse, they answer. Yeah, or worse, it's so true. Good point. And so you're not needed here, you know? And so- um, so, so I think like those are all brand touch points that are broken. Um, so mm. I think the, the first, the first assessment I would give is that we have a totally, we say we're the unified universal church and at every step down the chain, all we do is communicate disunity and fragmentation. So, so there's a total misalignment of brand for how we operate and who we are mm. Two. um, you have the damage that's been done of the perception that we don't walk the, the that like we we are held to a higher standard because of who we say we are, and yet we we are fallible and fall to all of these human issues. Um, you know, it's easy to say on the abuse crisis that actually, like when you look at the cases per you know as an institution, we're lower than most other human institutions. But that argument doesn't fly in the secular world when they say, well, you're supposed to be the the living you know, sure. the mystical bride of Christ. Like, um, and so, so you've got that element too. this, the brand that people perceive as hypocrisy. Then you've got mm. the perceived money side of the brand, which we all know is, is on, is largely false, but you can understand how it rings true where people just say, Oh, the church is wealthy and you're pulling all this money into these things. And, and, and it's not, I mean, we're stewards of the Vatican archives. We're stewards of this, this great art. We're stewards of things that ultimately belong to Christ and his people, the parishes, the property, all of those things the church is a steward of. Hmm. Um, but then when you hear that you've got a billion dollar lawsuit payout or something from a diocese, people think, well, these guys have a ton of money. And sure. so, so that's the, the, the tragic aspect of this. And I think that the brand ultimately, what is the church, but Christ himself, you know, with us. Um, and, and, and it's called the bride of Christ because in the mystical union of husband and wife, 
you begin to see, you see the other in each other. And so, oh. um, like, I think we get, I've, I've, done, I've done a lot of work where in marketing, we have the, the marketing funnel, right? Where you, you take somebody from like awareness to, to purchase through these steps. And, and awareness is like the entry point, the beauty, the convert, you know, the beauty, the friendship, the, the introduction of the story, the thing that entices you in. Then you you get into the data, you know what? Why is why is this thing be- beautiful? Let's argue that. Let's explain it. Let's rationalize it. And then you get into the 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 call to action. Well, so you've been moved by this beauty, and now you understand it. So call to action is you should purchase this product or become an advocate or you know. And then you th- then you be- then well then you make a purchase and you become an advocate of that. So that's how kind of you flow through the marketing funnel and. The church is stuck in the only thing that we're united on, which we're not even fully united on anymore, has been doctrine. So it's like it's like throughout history, like or throughout at least the last, I don't know, 75 years in the church, we fragmented and fragmented and fragmented. And so then the only thing we could say what Catholic is is like, well, here it's this catechism. That's it. It's the doctrine. Yeah. Let's argue that out. And so then the first, the entry point for people to the church has become apologetics, which is like, I'm going to argue truth to you until you see my, see truth. And, um, which brings people in, but not everybody, you know, no. like not everybody's yeah. ready for that conversation. And so, so I think that we have this person, then that perpetuates the perception that we're hypocrites because, because we say we know it all, which to be completely honest, like we have, we're pretty close to truth, the man named truth, Jesus. And so, so we do have a, have a unique authoritative perspective on truth. Um, but then when we don't back it up and the only way, only thing we communicate is that message, then we look like a bunch of hypocrites. So that's my brand assessment. Man. Yeah. It's kind of flooding the zone a bit in terms of, uh, where you start. I mean, if you think about, so a couple things, one of them is, the idea of the touch points, you know, your kind of uh, stuff that faces consumers, your websites, yeah. the way that, um, you know, if you're thinking of it from a purely secular standpoint, right? Your sales associates, right? The people yeah. at the parish yeah. level, all of these things Customer are touch service. points. Customer <laughs> yeah. service, yeah. right? Um, yeah, your, uh, you know, your your terms and conditions, uh-huh. all of those things. Um there are there is unique kind of breakage perhaps across that kind of value chain for us that I don't think people tend people in in, in church uh, leadership tend to look at. I think it's very important that we take whatever lessons we can from the secular business and marketing world and somehow baptize those mm-hmm. for the purposes of helping the church on its mission. So I think that assessment of itself, just the pieces of it, just hey, look at this is hugely helpful and should be an infographic we should make for the purposes of the, I don't know, USCCB or somebody, okay? The other thing that you mentioned, though, that I think is super, super, super interesting. I was, in all all fairness, I was having this discussion, I'm not going to name who, but with a CEO of pretty big Catholic media entity. Mm -hmm. And, um, And we talked about the idea of the spiritual journey as a marketing funnel. Yeah. And my question was, and it was just a question because I don't know, that's not my world. I've been in secular media my whole life. But my question to him was, what does the spiritual journey look like today? Today, what is the 2021 version in America of that step? Because I guarantee you, and this is the part that I feel convicted on, that the first couple of steps into that into that funnel are different than they were 50 years ago. I don't think it's like, Hey, I grew up, you know, Pentecostal or Episcopalian or whatever, and you Catholics are kind of weird, but then we have an apologetic discussion and boom, I'm in, right? right? I just think that those first couple of steps have more to do with like social justice or with things that are going on in the world where I'm I'm put into a camp or 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 made to feel like I'm in a camp of either this or that. Those kind of discussions, I think, especially among the young, probably predominate and therefore like the first steps into the funnel you described are a bit different. And so we don't even know what they are. How are we supposed to walk people down, help them or accompany them on that funnel? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I think, I think it's a good point. And I think it's like, you look at Jesus as the model and he's the both and, you know, like he talks to certain people that are the scribes and the experts and he shows them like, 
he totally negates their argument through through living justice and then he and then there's somebody else who comes to him that he calls to a higher level of of understanding you know like it's yeah. it's like Jesus is the apologist and the embodiment of mercy and so I think like the, the the short answer is and it's like the the one that is you know is personal sanctity and what I mean by that is knowing our gifts each person knowing first working on themselves knowing who God has called them to be and then and then living that out authentically oh. like I think it, we're an age that craves authenticity and you see that everywhere to the point that people are willing to like display their data for the world you know it's like it's like you talk about what you're giving up through digital when you just sign up for all these things and you're signing you're signing your privacy away and people are okay with that because they want to receive that authenticity so badly that they're willing to give everything away at the same and time. What, and what does that say? What does that signal about how culture is feeling? You know what I mean? Yeah. That they're willing to do that. They're craving connection in such a deep way. And they're crave, they're, they're, I think the culture is like, we get into these culture war conversations about, you know, how bad it is and it is bad. Um, but on the flip side, they're craving Christ. People are craving Christ more than they ever have. And all it really takes is just like authentic living. It takes being present to those people authentically as a friend. Um, and that and, and and a friend is someone who sticks with them, you know, like, and so I think if people could get their heads out of the numbers, like I need mm-hmm. to create this thing for the church that reaches a million people and convinces them of the truth. Like if, and they, they really got their heads in like, how do I be authentically present to the person in front of me? And if I'm good at that, well, let me add another person. And if I'm good at that, let me add five, you know, then that's what the world's craving. And that involves the justice side because you've got to serve those people. You've got to, you've got to be real, you know, you've got to journey with them. There's, um, you know, interestingly, this idea around people looking at the situation and finding it very dire, right. And a lot of, um, a lot of sky is falling, right. In terms of what's going on in the church. And you want to affirm, affirm that to the degree that it's true, because yeah. we need to have like a rallying cry, right, to, to get behind and, and, and whatever impetus helps us, great. But at the same time, you know, it's interesting because I think about the words of Jesus specifically when he talked about the poor. And he's like, you'll have the poor with you always, right? Yeah. And when you think about that, like, the, my, you know, the first thought might be, well, why? Why have the poor always, right? Yeah. Or you might say, why have the disenfranchised religiously always? Why have the doubting always? Why have the, you know, person who goes, who started a Catholic, but then left, you know, all, but it's sort of like, a, it's an image of the same kind of poverty, right? And to my mind, and it took me a long time to figure this out, and maybe I'm still figuring it out, like the easy answer is practice, right? Yeah. In other words, if we don't have the 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 person who's, you know, leaving the faith, if we don't have the, you know, segments of the population that haven't heard the gospel more than other segments have, right? If we don't have those, then we might get convinced or get a little bit lulled into a false sense of security that this is where we're supposed to be, right? And it's like, we've got a job while we're here, right? And it's like that job kind of changes over time. But like, I, I get the naysaying, but I also think it's, if you take it too far, what it really says is your expectation is that things should be like perfect here. And I don't think that that's part of the plan. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think it's like, um, we are co-redeemers with Christ of creation. That's what he's called the church to and in our own unique paths. And so like, does that mean that we're, we're are we capable of bringing heaven to earth or mm-hmm. is there, is there, you know, and how to, and what does that look like? And, and I think we just have our, I think one, we're not capable only through grace that in the, in the, the mechanisms of the church through us is this possible. But I think we've got a false idea of what heaven on earth is. Um, we, we think it means no poverty or we think it means, you know, these systems or structures that operate perfectly. And, 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 and Jesus describes heaven very clearly as, as a, a, a feast around a table, you know, like it's a family dinner. It's a, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's something where all those things are kind of left aside when we see people eye to eye and 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 serve them. And I know you and I share a real heart for for homeless ministry. And and I'm involved with a wonderful group called Christ in the City here in Denver, which is one of the few. Like I don't sit on many boards, but I I like begged them to put me on their board because um, 
for me, it's, it's such a privilege to, to be able to provide counsel to the work they do, but it's like their whole purpose. It's a, it's a nonprofit missionary group of young, young people right out of college. And their whole purpose is just being present to the homeless. They walk the streets and get to know the homeless and become their friends. And, and it's transformative. It's amazing what it does in the lives of these people. You know? And it's clearly fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? When you think about in an age of dissipation, distraction, fragmentation, atomization, mm-hmm. like what else could you want but a ministry of presence? I mean, that is, that's yeah. like genius in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even on the secular level, it's like, you you know, you could be like, uh, I don't know, Buffett or, you know, any of these guys, Jeff Bezos and be like, if you were trying to solve that problem, you're like, well, here's what we might need, you know? I checked out um, Christ in the City because yeah. I wasn't familiar, I don't think, until you and I talked about it the last yeah. time. But yeah, I mean, shout out to them for sure. The, the, this idea of just being, um, just going and being, you know, with people who are on the street. Yeah. You're not necessarily trying to point them to a resource or give them anything or have them give anything to you, but just literally, you know, know your name, walk with you, spend a minute with you, have a conversation. I mean, that's... It's huge. I know the the power of that from my own work with with the homeless and my wife's work for the last twenty years, um, but I, you know I hadn't seen very many examples of it until you shared that one with me. Yeah. No. And and I think that's the measure or the the definition of heaven, right? Is being like being present with God the mm. Father, like being caught up in the beatific vision. And so, as much as we can model that here on earth, or you know, enter into that and find Christ in others, we hear these great saints who talk about. You know, St. Francis seeing, you know, meeting the leper and then turning around and realizing it was Jesus. Well, he had the opportunity to be with that leper. And that's what transformed his whole life when he realized that that opportunity walked past him, you know. And so, mm-hmm. do you so, ever, yeah. do you ever like if you're driving around or walking around and, and this may be a slightly dangerous question, but whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but like you're walking around and you, and somebody's, you know, on the street. And I'm sure you've engaged with many, maybe even the majority of the people who you come in contact with, mm-hmm. but there's some that you don't, right? That you walk by or you're on a, in a hurry and you drive by. Do you ever think, like, do you ever look at those people and go like, I know I'm going to be seeing this scene again? Like, do you ever think about that at all? Like in any kind of way of like, is it a missed opportunity? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I'm, it's interesting because in my wife hates, hates it because like, um, we'll be driving and I'll just stop the car. You know, like if I have that intuition, like I'm out, like, and so, um, and I've got crazy stories from this, like really wild stories, but like, I I can't, and I can't tell you how, like, and she'll just roll her eyes and be like, okay, there's, here's 20 minutes. I'm going to sit in the car for the next 20 minutes. um, So like, (laughs) honestly, if I have the intuition that I need to like jump out of the car and talk to somebody, I do it. (laughs) So, yeah. So I don't have a lot of, and then like those that I don't have the intuition for, I know it's not my encounter. Like, yeah. Yeah. Like that's not my person I'm supposed to talk to. I saw this one, one time, um, it was outside of a Seven Eleven. There was a homeless guy who was just sitting there kind of like all strung out on the, on like the curb basically of the Seven Eleven, And, um, somebody, I was walking up and somebody had come out of the Seven Eleven, and was kneeling next to this homeless person Hmm. and was talking to them. Maybe, maybe they were giving them something. I don't exactly recall, but what I do recall is looking at a car that was stopped at the red light, turned his head and watched that scene. And it made me, it reminded me when we do, when we get that intuition Mm -hmm. that you just said, and we reach out to people, it's also a witness to folks you may never know until we get to the other side, right? Because I was thinking about that person in that car going, you know, what they just saw may be mm-hmm. the reason God allowed that encounter to begin with. It may, it may not yeah. be for the homeless person or for the guy coming out of 7-Eleven. It could have been for that person in that car. Yeah, 100%. 100%. That's, and even uh, the best example I can give is like, my family went through really difficult times in childhood. And my mom, there was this woman who's she lost her family in a car crash. And my mom did like some business with her. Like they were involved in some of the same committees and things. And they, they never talked to each other. And, and just like the way that she weathered that was the strength my mom needed to get through the stuff we went through. Yeah. And she finally had the chance to tell her. She bumped into her in the grocery store and was like, look, I know this doesn't undo the loss of your family in any way. But all I can tell you is I'm one person who is a witness 
you know, to how you handled this. And it gave me the strength to handle a whole bunch of other things. And so it's amazing how God works that way. And I think in heaven, I have this vision of heaven where we like, cause it's eternal. So like, we all have, we will all have our time, like where our story is displayed, where you see how yeah. it all interconnects and like yeah. all of heaven cheers, you know, and laughs and cries and like, and they just, get it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like they, it's, it'll be beautiful, you know, but yeah, I have a funny story. Mm-hmm. There's this guy. So I was driving to my spiritual director on, I forget which road it is. It's like one block south of, of Wilshire um, from the archdiocese in LA. So I'm driving. Olympic? No, no, that's too far down. It's like one off, you know, like just one street off. It's not a main street, but anyway, it's like eighth or something. So I'm driving down eighth, crossing over Western Boulevard to go see my spiritual director. And I see a man lying limp in the middle of the street, in the middle of Western Boulevard. And there's one guy there trying to block traffic, right? Like one guy standing there in front of this body on the street trying to get. And for people listening, Western Boulevard is a major L.A. through fair. Like, I mean, like eight lanes, you know, like. And so there's one guy there just trying to block traffic from hitting this guy who's laying motionless in the middle of the street. And I see a cop car drive by. So I change direction, chase the cop car down. I'm honking my horn pull up next to the police officers. They roll down their window annoyed with me. And, um, <laughs> and I go, did you see back there? There's a man in the middle of the street. And they go, we're on another call. We can't get to it. We'll call it in. And I said, okay, thank you. And then I just felt like helpless for this guy. So, and, and the thought yeah. crossed my mind. I wonder if he's baptized. Yeah. And, and I had a bottle of water in the back of my car. So I pull the car around, jump up on the curb, hop out of my car, run out there. Now there's two people with this guy. And, um, and I start trying to talk to him and, and like, there's no movement. Like I can't get a pulse. I rub his chest. Like I do all the things to try to wake him up and, and there's nothing. And um, like, he's, he's, if there's a pulse, it's really low and I'm not feeling it. And, um, and so I splash water on him. It was one of those really hot days in LA. So I pour some of my water on him, nothing. And so the only thing I had left was prayer. And by this time a crowd had formed. So I'm sitting there with this guy's head in my lap and I just start, and I was like, all right, I'm going to go for it. And so I put my hands on him. I pray. He opens an eye and looks at me and says, I'm dying. Mm. And the whole crowd is watching. And I said, well, um, uh, how did I phrase it? I said, well, if you're dying, um, uh, what's your name? And, and he said, and then he, he goes, I'm Willie Nelson. And I died laughing. I go like in this moment where this guy's telling me he's dying, I'm Willie Nelson. And I go, no, you're not, you know, cause I'm used to talking to homeless people. I go, there's no way your name's <laughs> Willie Nelson. I want your real name. And he, he goes, it's true. My parents named me Willie Nelson. <laughs> like, wow. So I'm arguing with this guy who's dying in my lap about his name. And, and, uh, and I said, well, Willie, the reason I'm asking your name is cause I, I want to know if you're baptized. And he goes, and he looked at me with a smile and he said, my father loves me. I know where I'm going. And wow. um, it was really beautiful. And so I said, well, Willie, is there anybody you want me to call? I have a phone with me. If you're dying, is there anybody you want to talk to? And he said, um, he said, no, no, I'm, I'm okay. And, um, and I said, well, would you like me to just sit here and pray with you for a while? And he said, I'd like that a lot. And there's this crowd around us, you know? And so I just sat there with this guy in my lap and we prayed together. And then after, after about five minutes, I said, well, Willie, it's been about five minutes. You think maybe you're not dying just yet? <laughs> he goes, he, he looks and he goes, he goes, well, maybe not. <laughs> I, go, I, go, I go, well, I go, do you think it might be better to get over in the shade out of the street and maybe we can just hang out and die over there? And he laughed and he goes, he goes, yeah, I'd like that. But his legs didn't work, like nothing works. So I carry this guy mm-hmm. under a tree and the ambulance showed up and took him off. And I don't know what happened to Willie Nelson, but, um, but like there was a crowd, man. There was a lot of people there sure. who just watched this whole thing go down and, you know. Oh, yeah. And there was, was a lot um, of different. Yeah. They were watching a variety of things, not just yeah, that exactly. man. They were watching you. They were they were yeah. listening to prayer maybe for the first time. Yeah. Uh, you know, who knows what was going on? Yeah. Uh, that's awesome, man. What that's, a powerful that's what story. I love about L.A. That's what I miss the most. If you have open eyes in L.A., like there's never like, man, there's so much to be. There's so much to do. So many people to meet. For sure. Especially yeah. ones that you didn't anticipate meeting. Yeah. I, I, um, one of the, the families in our, in our work, uh, Sophie's is the name of our ministry and our yeah. nonprofit for the homeless. Yeah. One of our Sophie's families, the patriarch of the family, um, 
is somebody who grew up with no faith, no understanding. In fact, you could even say had a very kind of traumatic, deformed sense of what faith and religion was, had a very abusive father um, who would somehow intersperse things related to God with his abuse. It was, it's really out there. Um, Mm -hmm. but he's been, you know, the years I've, the time I've known him, he's slowly been kind of coming along. And one of the things he asked me very recently was, you know, to your point, this idea of the difference between Jesus's return, what he at some point understood as a kind of tribulation and, you know, the very kind of Protestant way of looking at the world in terms of, you know, Jesus returns and he reigns physically on earth. Yeah. He wanted to know the differences between that um, and the the kind of judgment that we hear about in, in Hebrews, right? It's it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. So, so I explained to him and, you know, just kind of lay terms. I was like, look, well, there's a particular judgment and that's when we die. We meet Jesus and we kind of see that movie of our lives and we yeah. see all these great scenes like the one you just described. And then you know, we know at that moment whether we're going to be with him forever or we're going to be away from him forever. And that's what we know. But then at the end of everything, at the end of all history, when every, you know, molecule and atom dies away because everything will die, everything will stop. When Jesus then returns, we'll kind of all see everyone's story, right, to your point. And then you can kind of see the way that these things are all linked together. And yeah. so that scene that you just described right in the, in the middle of Western with this with this homeless guy. Is it was part of a is part of a much broader tapestry mm-hmm. of stories that are happening, right? And it's like you maybe people got a little bit of a preview there because they were all experiencing something together yeah. that they can relate to. But m- you know, more often than not, we don't get that opportunity. But yeah. but but nevertheless, we are kind of all connected in all these yeah. these activities, right? And actions. Yeah. yeah, and those things are happening all around us. And and part of it too is like people. A lot of people are so stuck in their phones or in their day to day or like. They don't notice it, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, let's let's talk about that for a second, because I think that the other thing you, you've you been pretty... Well, first of all, you're a domain expert in in in, um, in digital media as well, mm-hmm. which is not something, as you well know, is a, uh, you know, let's just say a common attribute in the institutional right. church. Right. So, um, <laughs> but you, you've talked about, I mean, again, another kind of interesting, controversial way of looking at the world, this idea that the digital age is almost is on the same level as like, you know, the the founding of the Americas, right? It's like this whole nother uh, realm that we're just now beginning to discover and how like we don't really know a lot about, you know, the implications of this new thing we've discovered but but we know we have to participate in it, right? We have to yeah. engage in it. But if you're just an outside, like a casual, whatever, bystander in the kind of Catholic conversation, you look at a lot of these media and you're like, I don't want to touch that stuff. Like, that's just, you know, it's awful. And it's everybody, you know, it's bad and censorship. And how do you, like, what's the balance to strike there? Yeah, I think like, so the way I look at it is, it's no coincidence that Jesus incarnated when he incarnated where he incarnated. So like, we have to ask the question, like why Nazareth, you know, like why was he raised in Nazareth? Why Bethlehem? Why Nazareth? And there's theological reasons, you know, for the prophecies and all of that. And then Nazareth is like where he, where he came from is like this dusty outpost on the middle of the Roman, you know, on the edge of the Roman empire. It's that you even have, um, the quote in scripture, Nazareth, what good can come from Nazareth? Right? <laughs> That's right. Like, like, like everyone in Israel just bashes Nazareth, you know? And so, right. so, um, so why there? And then, and then, you know, what did he set off on? And, and I think it's like his goal was transformation and redemption of the secular structures. So, so, it, he's born on the edge of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had built roads all over the world. The communications channel of the early church was the road system. You know, the message traveled as fast as Paul decided to walk that day. Mm-hmm. And you met people and you had this encounter and it moves towards Rome. And then the heart of Rome is transformed, you know, over over time. And, and the system flips and becomes the church. And it's really like one of the most amazing things in terms of Christ's triumph that like the empire that put him to death becomes his church. The language that condemned him becomes the language of prayer. It's amazing. 
And so I imagine in the early church, people would have been, you know, there were probably these like fuddy-duddy early Christians that were like, we got to stay off the roads because there's prostitutes on the roads and the Roman soldiers are always walking those roads and like bad stuff happens on the roads, you know, let's walk over in the field away from the roads because then we stay away from the bad stuff that's happening on the roads. But the fact of the matter is that that system was the system that was supposed to be redeemed and those were the, that was the channel we were supposed to walk. And so digital is just that it's it's a it's a road system of information transfer that has networked the entire world the only thing is that we move a lot faster than paul now so it's like yeah you can talk to the other side of the world we can have this conversation between denver and you know california and and um in, in real time and so so it's a new system that god is calling his disciples into to transform there are things that are um, dangerous about this system in the same way that you had robberies on the roads and you have all kinds of things. We got bad stuff in digital. I mean, you look at what's happened with pornography, you look at the the risks we're taking with giving up our data. You look at all of the addictive elements of digital, you know, like, um, the, the things that seem to bring out the worst parts of us. Um, but with any of these tools, like something I think is interesting for people to think about is like the the demonic, like the evil one is non-generative. You know, he was not made in the image and likeness of God. We were. And so he needs what we create. Like in order for him to build his kingdom, he needs what we create. And so, oh. so he everything we do, like the Roman Empire, he's going to leverage that to try to build his kingdom. He's going to try to leverage digital to build his kingdom Absolutely. because he can't make it himself. And so... So anytime a new technology comes out or a new thing comes out, you can be sure that the evil one's going to be there. And as much, but that just means the disciples need to be there even, even more even present. More. You know, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so I think for the arguments against like, stay away from that, like they're valid. Um, I think we should be prepared. There needs to be like a catechesis of the dangers of digital and like, and how to navigate this realm. You know, how do we do that as, as people walking these roads? Um, but, but there's, we absolutely cannot just like hunker down and become Catholic Amish. Do you, do you view the venture space as another one of these kind of modalities that can be potentially baptized for the purposes of the kingdom? Because like what you're doing now, you know, for people to understand is not just like you're launching a website, right? With, and I know you have that, um, with, um, Catholic.store, right? But you're, but this is part of a much broader ecosystem incubator accelerator kind of thing that you're doing which you know again many people in the vineyard would kind of look at and go like what is this thing it looks like uh seems very san francisco which is automatically suspect so so i mean could that also be uh, another modality yeah um yeah absolutely i mean i think everything like not everything there are things that are intrinsically evil that are not baptizable but but that this is not, you know, so of course it is baptizable in the sense that like, is this something that can be sanctified for the work of God to, you know, in creation a hundred percent. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, what we're trying to do, like, and, and it's on one level, it, it's frustrating. Like, I don't like that the first project we started was Catholic.store, if only because the perception could be that it's like it's product focused and transactional and all of that. But for me, the heart in Catholic.store is lifting up Catholic small business, Catholic families, like helping Catholic makers and 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 artists find a place where they can sell their stuff and and um and then getting that into Catholic homes so that Catholics can really lift up the domestic church, create liturgical experience, you know, within their home environment. Yeah. So like, but that's one one piece of a larger puzzle you know our dream is to really network the church um using this digital infrastructure which is right now it's unnetworked like it's a bunch of fragmented sites and 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 it's hyper competitive yeah and in a way that competition is sort of counterintuitive right relative to what we're trying to achieve across the board but at the same time you know um some of that call it you know Coopetition that the digital media showed us can actually be good, right? Keeps you on yeah. your toes, keeps you innovating, keeps you advancing, helps you to get external reference models of what to do. So in a way, it's good. And you're right, there is not like a, a kind of a singular experience that you know unifies these things. I experienced, um, ironically, 
my first experience with what you're trying to build was actually in person, which was, mm-hmm. you know, in Napa at that conference and being there as part of those group, all groups of, uh, you know, Catholic makers and, 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 you know, people who have businesses, all of them together, every one of them mentioned you. So like, I knew it was working, right? They're all like, oh yeah, yeah we're, you know, we're all doing this thing together. And I was like, well, that's, it's a, in a way it's such a simple thing, but the most elegant ones often are, right? This idea of kind of bringing these, these folks together and then having the benefit of the network effect and, you know, that sort of increase in visibility kind of take, take over from there. But, you know, it's such a it's such a great first step. Where does it go ultimately? Like what's is there an at scale vision? And I know that that may be like maybe that's not the point, but how do you view that? Yeah, I mean, I think that you think about the work of the church like um, over time. So the church has like Christ has made himself present through his church in healthcare and education and community. Um, and then those are, those are the foundational elements that then send forth disciples, you know, like from those things. And so, yeah, our vision is like right now there isn't a homepage for Catholic healthcare. It seems like that's getting, you know, there's all these interests, like vying parties that are all fighting with each other. And like, again, like if I was to say to you or any other Catholic, what is Catholic healthcare? What makes Catholic healthcare different than regular healthcare? I, I don't think people could fully answer that. And so mm. we want we want to create a platform that lifts up the great work that's happening in Catholic healthcare. We want to create a platform that lifts up the great work that's happening in Catholic education. We and, and we we want to build, you know, um, communities, create a tool that helps people form Catholic communities and and um and then network all of those things so that, you know, you can find product, you can find a doctor, you can find, you know, you can do these things, but not not towards creating a ghetto, towards towards build, building a true platform, which is is a foundation that the church can stand on as it does its work outward. And right now there isn't, in digital, that foundation doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And I think that because of the politics of the church, there nobody really knows how to do it. It keeps getting broken for everybody who tries. And so um, I recognize this is a, um, a only with God will it ever happen. Um, but but we want to we want to make an effort to try to do that to provide that foundation. Matt, what do you make of the rise of you know social enterprises out in the country or the seeming rise of them? Right, this kind of like B Corp, which is yeah. it's not a nonprofit, but it's not a for profit. It's a kind of for profit with a social end. Right, um, is that to your mind a kind of like? Um, maybe like a secular solve for something that we're just experiencing as a culture as we kind of, as religion wanes and we have a desire to give our lives to doing something good. Like, is there some connection there? Yeah, it's interesting. I think so. I think as you look at from a cultural standpoint where like um, consumerism and like, like in the late nineties going into the early two thousands, right? Like consumerism and, and, uh, became like the 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 mechanism by which you know, or even like your eighties through the nineties, right? Like it was um just the, the, how the the this radical consumerism malls, and then that turned into online shopping, and like everybody wanted to have the next and the best, and like so then how do you transition from that into into um, something that gives back. And then you've seen these social good for profits come out. Like Patagonia is a good example. You know, you, you buy from Patagonia, you know that a portion of what you buy goes back to the environment or Tom's shoes where they give a pair of shoes to kids in need. And, and, um, and I think it's helped people wrestle with and wrap their head around this like consumerist mentality, which is like buying for me, but then they, they feel better about it. And, and there is somewhat of a, a it allows for the consumer, it allows for this religion of consumerism to continue, yeah. you know, yeah. for sure. Yeah. Hmm. But I think it's a very good thing. I think that yeah. there are things that for-profits do and are able to do that the nonprofit model maybe just doesn't work well for. And so, so I, I, I think the B Corp is a very interesting concept of how can I leverage the best of for-profit, but temper that by putting it under a mission so that my for-profit is, 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 at the service of profits towards a mission, which is a little different than a straight nonprofit. Um, and, and it allows for the creation of value while also serving, serving a purpose. 
Yeah, maybe I'm over reading it by, you know, as a kind of barometer of of the kind of consciousness of the culture. But I, I, I can tell you, maybe it's just part of getting older, the conversations yeah. that I have with people who are like, you know, the next thing, I, it has to mean something to me. The next thing has to be important. It has to be aligned to my values. It has to do good for the world. And all of these, it has tos, generally from people who are either don't have much of a faith life or at least have never expressed it to me knowing full well that I do. And sometimes it provides an avenue for conversation, which is a good thing. Other times it doesn't, but it seems to happen a lot. Yeah. And so, you know, maybe that's a, maybe that's something that's coming up that we can, you know, use as, I don't know, conversation starter or, or some other trend that, that, that can help lead us into a positive direction. Right. Yeah. Um, I just, I just found it interesting, you know, the number of conversations that I've had around that kind of subject. Yeah, I would agree with you 100% on that. I think that particularly in like in with the young people that I've hired or and by young people I'm like like lower end of millennials, Gen Z, like people who are coming out of college right now or a few years out of college, like um they have this real drive to do good with their life and they don't want to compromise on it. And and um and that's really beautiful and that's something yeah. that can be channeled and it's a great opening point for a conversation around like well, how can we do the most good? What is good? You know, I gave, um, I gave a really interesting talk a few years back at, um, I was invited to speak at the Harvard business school, um, on like the business of the church and, um, and, mm. uh, and, um, you know, this is the same thing that Bishop Barron did that great kind of calling them to task on. Um, they just hired an atheist as the chaplain. I saw that. Like, so it's like, like, this is, this is where it's, it's like, at. No. And so, yeah, exactly. Like this, that doesn't make sense. So, but so I gave a talk on that and, um, and it was so well received, like just from a secular perspective, I talked about that the church, like the things that like, we, we know the church is so much bigger than this, but the world's largest nonprofit that it's networked, you know, networked entity around the world, that it's the first to respond in crisis, you know, because like take the tsunami in Southeast Asia, the church was the first on the ground because the church was already there before the Red Cross got there, before anybody got there. Um, the power of that system, mm. you know, we started, I started going through numbers of just how powerful that network is. And you started seeing these Harvard, Harvard MBAs, like, boom, 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 like just lights going off in their head, like, whoa, 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 you know, and, and because they want to do good, like they, they, they want to do good. And they, and they're learning about social business. They're learning about these things. Um, and they've just ignored the church. Like it hasn't been something that they've ever thought of as something that they should enter into to help them accomplish this good that they feel led to accomplish. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, the 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 soul on some level always is drawn to, you know, its maker and to the good things that exist mm-hmm. out in the world, right? And so uh, certain interactions like that one maybe that you, uh, you know, facilitated are like the seeds, right? Hopefully a lot of that stuff will give fruit and, and, and help people walk on their way. I, I know the, I know the seeds that happen in my life now, as I look at them in retrospect and it was, yeah. you know, things like that, things like the, you know, kind of facilitation of some sales training thing. I was like, what is this? This is boring. I hate it. And then you walk out with something you remember for 25 years. And that's just the way that it, that it is. Right. Yeah. And so what a blessing you're able to do it. So Matt, um, as a startup founder, I know you have a lot of, t- a lot of things like headaches and to do's, but we don't have a lot of time. Sure. Uh, with you. So we're actually uh, at the top of uh, at the top of our time together. But before we move on to our wait what segment, um, guy like you has a ton of stuff going on. So I'd love for people to be able to support your work, follow it, you know, stay abreast of everything that's going on. I think the stuff that you're doing is super cool, super innovative, very necessary. I think we need the whole weight of you know, the institutional church, um, you know, uh, people who are well-resourced, well-healed Catholics as well, individually behind it. And I certainly want to want to be one of those. So how, how do people stay connected, stay involved and, and see what you're doing? Yeah. So the, I guess the, the first and, and easiest way is coming into the Christmas season. If you're thinking of finding some unique Christmas gifts for your friends or family, catholic.store so it's it's not .com it's .store um is uh basically we've we've built a platform that connects catholic small businesses and publishers all in one place so you know if you buy a rosary there it's going to support 
the person that made that rosary, you know, for the most part. Or, um, so we've got really cool items in there, jewelry, books, um, uh, toys for kids, you know, like just anything and everything. Um, so, so I, I encourage you to support the people that we work with. And then we give, we tie the percentage back. So we are a social good business. So we tie back to um, just really awesome religious orders that are doing great stuff for the church. So, so then money we make goes back to support the, the church itself in addition to supporting Catholic small businesses and then Catholic creatives. If you, if, if anybody listening is a, um, you know, an artist or even an engineer with a creative vision for a business or musician or any of those things, we've got um, Catholic creatives is now under, under Catholic ventures, which is our parent entity. So that's a, a Facebook group and, and page and, and uh, um, where, where all of these creatives around the world are connecting and sharing information. And so I encourage people to join that just to connect in with the larger creative church um, and then pay attention to what we have coming. So Catholic.care for healthcare should be coming up soon and um, a number of other projects that kind of help us, you know, institute this vision that, that is a unified church. Awesome. Well, I, I can only say good things about the, the, the vision that you have, and uh, my prayer is that God actually make that vision a reality in all corners of the world, but certainly in our country here. Thank you. All right, Matt, you ready to play Wait What? I don't know, man. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'm here. Well, the, I'm going to play it. Well, the good news is we're going to start with a real easy one to kind of get you a little bit limber. Okay, right, so this one's good. real easy, sounds real good. easy. All right, ready? All right, all right yeah. Matt. Which one of these is creepier? Okay, creepier. Yeah. Facebook's investment in developing cryptocurrency and artificial intelligence, men who use the word yummy, or sweaters on French bulldogs? Uh, I think it's men who use the word yummy. Yeah. Just because the way that rolled off as you said it, like, I just, I almost couldn't hear it, you know? Um, you you won't be surprised to learn, Matt, that that is the correct answer. Good. As it as it turns out, as it turns out, that is definitely far creepier than AI crypto or uh, sweater wearing uh, French bulldogs. Right, exactly. All right, very good. You're one for one. Question number two, Matt. As you already know, the Catholic Church is the most ancient, continuously run organization on the planet. But what you may not know is that eight of the top 10 oldest family businesses are also Catholic. Okay. The oldest of these Catholic family businesses is called Fonderia Pontificia Marinelli. It's founded in the small central Italian town of Agnone, and it was founded in the year 1000. It still uses the original techniques of its founders. Its products are used today in New York, Beijing, Jerusalem, South America, Korea, among many other hundreds of locations. The firm has 20 employees, including five members of the original founding family. Wow. Matt, what product do they make? I, I, I don't know. I, I have no idea. I feel like I've heard of Marinelli before. It's not like they don't make clerics or anything like that. It's not like a tailor. Yeah, then I don't know. Any guesses? I don't know. Yeah, I'm, I'll give I, you. I'll give you a hint. The, yeah, the, the, the the first part of their name, Fonderia, is Italian for foundry. Okay. Um. So is it jewelry? Incorrect. Sadly, okay. incorrect. Yeah. They actually are the maker. They're bell makers. They make bell makers. Bells. Oh, nice. So they've been uh, installing bells all over the planet in the Christian world and beyond for a millennia and That's more. Awesome. So That's there awesome. you go. Yeah. All right, Matt, rounding things out. It's a time machine question, Matt, because there's always a time machine question. Mm -hmm. You ready? I'm okay. Ready. You're able to return to 1973 to intercept computer scientists Vinton Cerf and Bob Kahn, who are credited with inventing the internet communications protocols we use today and the system referred to as the internet. You've got one hour with them. Matt, what do you say to Vinton and Bob? What a great question. Um, I think I would first start by listening and tell, I mean, I'd probably tell them I'm from the future, right? And I, 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 would, I would let them know that I have some particular 
information that may or may not be interesting to them. And I would ask them what their future vision is for what they're creating. You know, I would, where do they see this going? Um, and, and then I'd probably just talk about, you know, like, and then I'd probably just share about my experience, what I'm trying to do, where it's gone and what I'm trying to do. You know, I'm not going to try to convince them of anything. They need to create it. It needs to move forward. I don't want a butterfly effect thing to happen. I don't want to freak them out. You know, I don't want to convince them not to create the internet. Um, so yeah, I would just be more interested in, in hearing from them and sharing from me and, uh, and, uh, and talk, you know, I'd probably talk about Jesus a little bit in the process. There you go. That yeah. certainly never, never hurts. Absolutely. <laughs> That's a good one. Well, nice work on that there, Matt. Uh, you did pretty good. You did oh, pretty thanks. good. I'm going to start posting scores on this now as we move, yeah, as we okay. move forward. But, okay. uh, but uh, hey, man, on a serious tip, um, you know, just God bless and prosper your work. Um, as I said, I'm a big fan of everything that you do and the things that you're attempting to do now. And just encourage everybody to to uh, to stay involved and you know offer you obviously my prayers and, and my blessing for your for your great success um, in all of these endeavors. So thank you for coming on the show. Hey Deacon Charlie, thank you for the invite, and it goes back to you. Thank you for everything you're doing and um, the great work you're doing, um, both through your you know your business, through this podcast, through your nonprofit work, through being a deacon. You know, it's a, a thank you for the heart that you're giving to our church, and it's been a pleasure to be able to talk with you for the past hour. Awesome. Thanks be to God. And if you're listening to our voice, make sure to subscribe to this show, share it with your friends, help it to grow. Check out catholic.store, catholic.store, and we'll have all the information on Matt's organizations in the show notes. We'll see you again next time on Living the Call. If you enjoyed this episode of Living the Call, please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star review. Tell someone you love about the show and spread the word. Living the Call is available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. You can learn more about the organization behind the show by searching for the Catholic Association of Latino Leaders on any social platform or by going directly to call-usa.org. That's C-A-L-L-U-S-A.org. Living the Call is produced by Manu Castan and Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Networks. God bless you and thank you for listening.